When you're driving to the San Fernando Valley, it helps to have a plan. So here's mine. Leave way, way more time than you think you need. One mile ahead on the route. Stop and go traffic. One mile long. And then if, by some miracle, you get where you're going early, you can stop off and grab a bite at Bobby's Coffee Shop in Woodland Hills, a little pocket of the early 60s there on Ventura Boulevard. You're going to need your strength. The valley is vast and different, a group of cities within a city, mostly. Its own place, sort of, with its own character, for good or ill. Someone called me and says, oh my God, I saw a shirt that says, I don't date 818. All right, come on, get over it. <laughs> Enough of that. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. The San Fernando Valley. It's hard for outsiders to get their arms around it. For one thing, it's enormous, 260 miles square, and home to a little under 2 million people. But it isn't just about the numbers. How did the valley, the one that exists as an idea as opposed to the San Fernando Valley you can find on a map, how did it happen that people in Milwaukee and Toronto and Tokyo probably know what you mean when you refer simply to the valley? That's not about size. It's about identity. What does it mean to call the valley home? For starters, it means a sense of being from a place that is, for all its sprawl and its confusing welter of localities, there are five separate incorporated cities in the valley, the city of LA reaches into it too, plus dozens of distinct communities that function at least culturally like their own towns. For all that cartographic confusion, People tend to grow up there with a sense of being from a singular place. Kevin Roderick grew up in Northridge in the 50s and 60s, one of those town-like communities, and he felt it even then. You, you knew you were in a place. It wasn't like we were just in a corner of Los Angeles. We were in a place called the San Fernando Valley, and, and we all knew that. Roderick's the editor of the website L.A. Observed, and he's the author of The San Fernando Valley, America's Suburb. That title says a lot. In the first decades after World War II, when the valley was undeniably on the ascent, its population swelled from a couple of hundred thousand to over a million between the end of the war and 1962. In those boom years, largely thanks to the influence of the TV shows and movies made by the people who lived there, the valley became the essential American suburb right at a moment when suburbia was becoming a thing. The streets were wide. The lots were big. There were horses and chickens. I've gone back and I've read through the old Valley News newspaper clips and the old Los Angeles Times when it had a Valley section and there was a newspaper called the Valley Times. And I've, I've been through a lot of those to, to look at the, uh, you know, what were the political disputes and that sort of things. And there was a lot of stuff about uh, people moving to these new suburbs and then being upset that there are tractors um, plowing fields right nearby or people raising chickens or having bees and that sort of thing. Oh, I'm packing my grip, and I'm leaving today, cause I'm taking a trip, California way, I'm gonna settle down and never more roam, and make the San Fernando Valley my home. 
I'll forget my sins. My parents came out in 53. You know, um, so out the West Valley, like like we were saying in 53, you know, that my house, you know, in that Northridge area, they weren't even houses there, they were just orange groves. You know, so there was space. You know, you see these pictures, you could see the space of the farmlands and stuff. And That's Denny Tedesco. He's the director of the documentary The Wrecking Crew, about the group of crack session musicians who played on pretty much every hit you remember from the 60s and 70s. His dad, Tommy Tedesco, was one of its core members. Tommy was the kind of rock-solid working guy who could play on anything. He'd back the Monkees on a Monday and Frank Sinatra on Tuesday. He wasn't a star, but he sure was a professional. It was where I think a lot of technicians, I, you know, the Hollywood folks, you know, if you weren't the directors and stuff, I think you lived in the Valley. You know, we, it was affordable. If you weren't a director, you lived in the Valley or an A-list actor, or a top-drawer screenwriter. There were exceptions, sure. Everybody in Toluca Lake knew exactly where their neighbor Bob Hope lived. But for the most part, Hollywood royalty lived on the other side of the hill, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Malibu. Below the line, you were more likely to live in the expansiveness of the valley. Lighting guys, cinematographers, grips, session musicians. They were the ones who made the shows that spread the valley image far beyond its borders. Here's a story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. It's a story. In fact, even the Brady Bunch, which is probably the prototypical example of 70s family life. This is Hal Lifson. He's the author of the book, 1966, A Personal View of the Coolest Year in Pop Culture History. He grew up in Encino. At its core is a family living in the valley, even though it wasn't referenced on the show. The Brady Bunch house, the actual physical home they used, is on Dilling Street, just off uh, Colfax or a street in North Hollywood. It still exists. You can drive by it. But that idea of a valley family living a very valley life, they didn't reference it, but that was the feel of it. That amplifying connection between the valley and show business. It was heady stuff if you were growing up there. Kevin Roderick again. The movies and television, you've been watching it all your life. When I was growing up out there in the 60s, you know, it was the era of westerns. And all of the mountains and all the trails and all the scenery was what places we would go on the weekends to to play. And it was a little freaky in, in that sense, is that you saw, you know, Fort Apache was over here or, you know, over by Mike's house kind of thing. Now, of course, it wasn't just TV and movie people who lived in the valley in the 50s, the 60s and 70s. The people who lived there made, they built all sorts of things. They made cars at GM and Van Nuys brewed beer at Budweiser, wired speakers at JBL, cranked out airplanes and rocket parts at Lockheed and Rocketdyne. So there's just a lot of things that have affected the planet as a whole, and people don't know that. So a lot of people think it's very localized, like, oh, only someone from the valley would appreciate that. Not true. We were the people that produced it and made it available for the world. So class has something to do with valley identity, too. There's an us and them thing. You can hear it. It lingers today. That was Tommy Gelinas you just heard. His dad was a struggling actor, and his mom worked the switchboard at Republic Pictures. And Tommy grew up all over the valley. 
Now he runs the Valley Relics Museum in Chatsworth. He came up with an ingrained sense of the valley as someplace separate and distinct and special, no matter, it should be said, what the rest of L.A. may have thought. It's like one of those things. You know how like sometimes when you're mad at your parents, you can kind of say something, but no one else can talk about mama? <laughs> well, that's kind of how it is with us valley folk. It was its own place. The valley looked and felt different, right down to the storefronts that lined Ventura Boulevard. They weren't glitzy national chains, not then. There were places like Bobby's. Toy store, the toy roundup that was in Tarzana. That was the go-to toy store. There was no Toys R Us. That started later. We had mom and pop. There was one in Studio City, Buddy Brown's toys. So every experience that you had as a kid, buying shoes, you'd go to Burgess Bootery in Tarzana or Children's Bootery. There was one in Encino. And it was very, very down home, and yet you always figured it would be that way. It wasn't until years later, which wasn't many years later, by the mid-80s, things rapidly started changing and becoming much more franchise-driven. Bigger corporations took over, and it changed childhood. It changed the childhood and teenage experience because meeting places were fewer and far between. In those years, though, the post-war years, the Valley was, for a lot of people, the place to be. It was the place that a lot of the people in Los Angeles aspired to live was the valley. Again, for, you know, newer houses, bigger lots, a better lifestyle, that kind of thing. It was not, there was nothing sort of citified about it. If you were a guy recently back from the war or the next generation out, and you were looking for a safe, pleasant place to raise kids, well, the valley was hard to beat. And if you were one of those kids... The entire San Fernando Valley was our playground. So, for example, there was five or six different custom-made uh, bicycle tracks that were in the valley. In, in the valley in, in, in 1964, um, well, you would, you would hook up with your friends on your bike, and you could ride anywhere. Well, in, the, in that phase of my life, I was still highly dependent on the Stingray bike as the primary mode of transportation, and I treated it as though it was a car. Because I tell my wife this all the time, and she's so sick and tired of hearing about me riding my bike. Uh, there were a tremendous amount of meeting places. Uh, one in particular was the Encino Bowl, no longer there. But that was a huge part of my life, but not just because of the bowling. I was never great at bowling, but there had pinball machines. There was a coffee shop there. It was a meeting spot. It was Pepe's. Um, Balboa and Roscoe was Pepe's go-karts. You know, it was way before they had those Malibu, you know, Grand Prix stuff. It was real go-karts. And you could cruise Van Nuys Boulevard. One of the, I mean, Van, cruising Van Nuys Boulevard was thousands of cars on a Wednesday night and was featured in lots of movies. But it was a big hot rod, custom car, custom bike thing to do uh, in the late 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up into the 80s till they ceased doing that. There was a skating rink in Northridge that was a kind of a big cultural spot for a lot of people, both for the kids who started there really young and then by the time you were in high school and older it was the place where the rock, where rock and roll was happening in the valley. It was the kind of the rock and roll venue. Frosty Freeze, Dairy Queens, big slides, a lot of um, trampoline spots where you had arcade, trampolines. And there was Bush Gardens in Van Nuys. A lot of kids who grew up in the valley in the 60s and 70s remember Bush Gardens. It was one of those places that, as the old advertising tag had it, was literally fun for the whole family. Bush Gardens used to have a tour. And for the adults, it was great because it's beer tasting. But for us, they had like um, literally uh, rides. 
you know, and I remember driving our bikes down there. I must have been 11 years old in the early 70s. And you go in, I, I still remember this, 21 times on the, on the roller coaster or the, bo- uh, the log ride or whatever it was. Looking back on it now, the valley of the 60s and 70s looks like the Garden of Eden of American industry. There was so much manufacturing of cool stuff. I mean, we would dig in the trash at JBL when we were 12 and pull out speakers. And they were perfect working speakers, but they were either, you know, the wrong color or they put too big of a tweeter in it. But we were bringing speakers home. We'd go and dig in and pull out frames from Mongoose and Redline and stickers and grips. And, I mean, it was just a blast. It felt like the center of everything. It felt like it would never end. Kevin Roderick vividly remembers the sound of saws and the smell of sawdust. A place on the rise. Uh, you felt that it was an, kind of an important place. Movie stars that you knew were living in your neighborhood. Um, so that, that's a good thing. You saw your neighborhood or your place on television and in movies. So that was a plus, right? Things were being built. It did seem like everything was possible going forward. It was not a, a place of... of, of you know, uh, shrunken aspirations. And also, remember, for, a long t- for, for many years, in the evenings, we could hear the rocket engines being tested at Rocketdyne uh, in the Chatsworth Hills. And just out of nowhere, suddenly you would hear this roar, and you'd feel it in the ground, and you'd look out to the west, and the sky would be glowing red. And this was testing the rockets that were going to go to the moon. So you felt like you were part of something bigger, in a sense like that. I'm going to settle down, never more roll. Make the San Fernando Valley my home, sweet home. Make the San Fernando Valley my home. But it did end. Not all at once. It happened over time, the way it does. The population, that first generation or two that came to the valley after the war, it aged. Houses that used to hold families of six or eight were down to two, and then one. And the houses declined, and eventually became easy pickings for the predations of developers. And the characters of those streets and those neighborhoods changed. And not for the better. The dominoes fell, and not only in housing stock. In amenities, too, in those manufacturing jobs that had defined a couple of generations of working life in the valley. A lot of the drive-in movie theaters are no longer here. A lot of the historic buildings and homes have been torn down. Um, A lot of businesses that used to be here, like General Motors, they couldn't afford the insurances and the property taxes. They were slowly pushed out, and as well as Rockadine and the Lintons. Uh, most recently, Sunkist is is moving. It's, I think it's still Los Angeles County, but I but they're moving out of the valley. And it has to be said, the valley so white for so long, wasn't really immune to the racial tensions that gripped the society around it in the 60s and beyond. It just kicked them down the road by redlining minorities out of the best areas. And now there's a legacy of institutional racism and a memory in a generation of Valley residents that they were in the place, but not really of it. And that's the kind of bill that always comes due. In 1958 or so, 57, 58, there was a plane crash over the valley. Um, and uh, uh, two, no, a, a military plane and a civilian airliner, but not loaded with people, crashed over Pacoima. 
and the debris fell on Pacoima Junior High School and hit some kids out in the field. This is memorialized at the beginning of the Richie Valens uh, biopic, uh, La Bamba, because he was a student at that school at the time, didn't see it that he wasn't at school that day, but he, but he heard about it and it really kind of stuck with him. A lot of kids were frightened by this idea of falling, flaming debris. And it turned out they had no hospitals anywhere close to that part of the valley. This was the part of the valley where uh, minorities lived, where they, where they weren't redlined from buying homes in Pacoima. Um, and they found out the, there's just no hospitals around here. They had to shovel people to hospitals down in Van Nuys. There are other kinds of long-simmering debts being paid down in the valley now. Even people who have fond memories of growing up there in a time that now seems idyllic, they'll cop to a charge of insularity. Growing up and going to school in Northridge, Kevin Roderick says, he can't remember a single field trip to Griffith Observatory or Exposition Park. Those might as well have been on the other side of the moon. It, it is physically separate by distance, right? We, we were always aware. I grew up in Northridge, and we were aware that we were 25 miles from downtown. That was kind of one of our, our markers. 25 miles from the city hall of your own city, and we're not even to the other side of the city. You know, we're just gone to the middle, more or less. Uh, and so you're physically separate. You've got, it's the only city anywhere with a mountain range down the middle of it, dividing it into essentially hemispheres, and hemispheres of physicality and culture. Hal Lifson felt that cultural isolation, too, and that burdensome sense that people from the valley were, compared to their neighbors across the hill, just plain less hip. Yeah, and it wasn't completely without logic or reason that that stereotype existed, because in the valley, it was more sheltered, it was further north, and you didn't have the cultural diversity and that affected pop culture. You didn't have music diversity the way you did in Hollywood or the streets, you know, the mean streets of Hollywood where you were hearing the very early beginnings of R&B transitioning to hip-hop, rap. That all took place, of course, in the 80s for the most part. But that really was more of a city-based transition. It came to the valley later. The valley had what was thought of then as surfer culture. Ironically, there are no beaches here, but there were just a lot of more laid-back, um, surfer-type teenage kids that weren't pressing as hard to learn about the things that existed in the city. Put all that together, stir until the 1980s, and it's a recipe for a generation of young adults who, as soon as they could move away from the valley, did. The valley had a mundane quality that still exists to this day because there wasn't much nightlife here compared to the city. So it was a place you would leave once you could drive. Once you were 16, you got out of the valley to go south into the west side or even downtown. And the place they knew so well, it slipped into the past. And yet, the valley, the one that exists in pop culture, it persists. It abides. Kevin Roderick talks about the diaspora of Valley people who left in the 80s and beyond. That's the word he uses, the diaspora. And maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe the same forces that drove them out ensured that the seeds of its influence would stay scattered. If you visit the Valley Relics Museum on a Saturday, as I did in August, you'll see people there from all over the country and the world. There might be a guy playing guitar back in the corner by the neon sign, for the long-defunct country bar and concert spot, the Palomino. And Tommy Gelinas will be there to show you around and answer your questions. It's a cool collection. But you wonder, is that all it is? Well, think of it this way. 
you're a valley kid in the 60s or the 70s. The hipper kids from over the hill don't think much of you, and maybe you don't think much of yourself. But when they get in their cars, or if they're younger, they get on those sharp new BMX bikes, and they go to their friends' houses to listen to records or watch TV, sitcoms, and moonshots. Who do they think made the cars? The bikes. The stereos. The TV shows. The rockets. Everything that was driving the culture then, everything that seemed tantalizingly just out of your reach, all the software that powered the idea of an ascendant youth culture, the valley made the hardware. So maybe you grow up with a little chip on your shoulder. Maybe you earned it.